even though we've been talking for like 35 minutes, I feel like I've only got 15 minutes worth of content at this point. That's probably a good thing. <laughs> Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show! Hello and welcome to Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show. My name is Andy and welcome to the show all about moons. This episode is recorded on the 19th of October and we'll of course be doing our moon-related news, which this time will feature 4G going to the moon, some old bits of rocket that might be hurtling past Earth again as a mini-moon, as well as some updates regarding the Earth-Moon collision, the one that formed the moon way, way, way back when. Uh, I'd like to do a little update about Chang'e 4. And then, of course, we've got our foreign moon news featuring moons of Saturn, Jupiter, as well as an asteroid moon, which has just got its name. And, of course, we'll be doing everyone's favourite features of very local moon news, the moon of the month, and the next moon is, which this week will feature Callisto. But first and foremost, hello, my lovely co-host, Rick, who will ask the everyman questions about the moon. How are you doing today, Rick? I'm good, Andy. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, thank you. It's been a while since we've actually done an episode, probably because I've been swamped trying to get out the latest moon video, which was all about Miranda, and it's the longest one to date, so obviously it took a long time to put together. It was very good, even if I do say so uh, myself, which I had nothing to do with, so I can do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, th thank you very much. Yeah, I'll, I'll take credit for that, thanks. Uh, no, no, it was very good. Nothing to do with Miranda from the BBC. No, but when I kept typing in to like get images of Miranda, I type Miranda and then she would come up first. And they're like, oh, right, Miranda, Moon. And then they'd, she'd still crop up there occasionally. Oh, cool. Uh, but that's not the most exciting thing you've had uh, this month, is it? Uh, it's not, no. Uh, I got to talk on national radio, Radio 1, to Greg James, the breakfast host. Uh, for those of you who don't listen in British, Ra Radio 1 is, is like the cool uh, young people's station where they played loud music uh, from the hit parade. But no, uh, you were speaking to the young people about moons. How did you end up doing that? Well, what, what happened was, originally they meant to have a guest on it, uh, someone called Sean Mendes. N never heard of him. <laughs> you might have heard the songs featured on adverts and you'd be like oh it's that one i get it or when you happen to be in i don't know tesco's when they're belting out stitches or something like that then you might recognize it either way he was meant to be on the show but they couldn't get hold of him at all they uh, they tried calling his agents tried calling his production team couldn't get hold of him so on a whim uh, and my wife told me this so I text in say like, oh, if you need someone to fill the air, I'm a, I'm a moon expert and I'm happy to come on and talk about moons. So, and then they read out the tweet as in just like, oh, so Andy's tweeted in. It's like, oh, we'll put that in the maybe pile. But then more and more people started tweeting the show and texting in saying, no, we want to hear about the moon man. We want to hear about moons. So then I got a call from the producer say like, uh, can you come on and talk about moons for a bit? And then we had a, a little chat where I think he was basically vetting me to make sure, one, I do know stuff about the moons, and two, I'm not an idiot. Yeah, and you got passed. Now, that, that's, that's still up for debate, yeah. but yes, <laughs> I, 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 I fooled them. I think you do know about moons there, Andy. Uh, and when they, when they said, what are your credentials? I, I just said, well, I have a master's in physics, and I 
find this stuff really interesting. I forgot to mention the YouTube channel. I forgot to mention that I named two moons of Jupiter and I forgot to mention this amazing podcast. So I, I didn't plug any of my stuff like an idiot, but they did say, they did say I was a good caller and they put me in the good caller book. So hopefully they'll have me back on the show at a later date and I can then maybe plug the thing. Yeah, I must say, you did sound very good on air. Um, I get the feeling, yes, you will be one of those people in their book when anything happens to do with the moon or moon-related, they'll go, oh, yeah, who's that moon man? Yeah, let's just give him a call, see if he can, <laughs> you know, fill five minutes with his moon-related stuff. Uh, so, yeah, no, you, you did, did sound very good, I must say. Well, thank you very much. Well, it's all thanks to you and this show practising me, but also you practising me with improv way back when, when I joined your improv troupe. Oh, yeah, that was it. Do you remember char characterization to the wall? I remember the days when we used to just speak to the wall. It gets you used to having an audience not reacting whatsoever. Yeah, it was a hard thing to get over initially, but my jokes usually fall on dead ears because they're really niche references anyway, so I'm just used to saying something I think is hilarious and no one laughing. Yeah, the wall's been the best audience member we've ever had. <laughs> it's been the most patient. Yeah, and, and can we say hello to anyone who was listening to Greg James, has never heard Andy before, somehow managed to look him up, even though he didn't plug any of his output, and has ended up listening to this podcast. So well done and hello. Yeah, welcome to the show. Thank you for putting in the effort to actually find this show, and hopefully you'll like what you hear from this point on. So the premise of the show is Andy knows everything about moons, and I don't. So I'm the equivalent of uh, Greg James, except not being as hip and cool, tre trendy <laughs> and with it, and down with the kids, as they say. Yes, all that that's exactly what all the youth of today say and describe themselves as. But anyway, enough about me. What have you been up to, Rick? Well, Andy, as you know, every month I sort of try and do something that is different, <laughs> just so I can fill this section of the podcast to make my life sound interesting. This month, I finally wrote up my voting system for the House of Lords. Uh, uh what? Okay. <laughs> Why? And what is it? Well, you know, I, I, I do maths and I like voting systems. So I wrote up a voting system. And also I've seen the um, politics today is very, very partisan. So I was thinking, well, can you invent a voting system which will create a non-partisan chamber from a partisan body of people? So if you look at, you know, the Supreme Court in America at the moment, they're going to vote in their people very quickly before a potential presidential changeover and in the UK we've got uh, the House of Lords where you appoint people just because you know they're your mate or in, <laughs> in the case of Boris Johnson's <laughs> brother uh, you're Boris Johnson's brother uh, so I was wondering is, is there a way of creating a, a non-partisan chamber or a body from a partisan body so I, I invented a, a voting system to do that so I wrote it up that, that was my month and did it did it work can it be done uh, well it's not been done yet um, it's just going through parliament now yeah uh, <laughs> But no, uh, broadly, the outline is if you've got, say, 10% of the vote in one chamber, you get 1%. But if you get 20%, then you get that amount squared. I do the maths in the in the paper. Yes, I remember you saying this. I remember you telling me about this. That was it, yeah. And I explained it in like three bullet points and a random rant. So I've actually written it up formally. So, <laughs> so that, that was my month. Okay, excellent. Well, before you do the finishing touches on it, I'll send you some videos by CGP Grey about voting systems that you might want to 
uh, incorporate. I've seen them. Oh, nice. Yeah. So would, would this be first preferential vote? I think he does mixed member plurality. Uh, no, so this is this is on top of it. So this would be voting, um, not people voting for an electoral body. Uh, this would be the second phase where the electoral body has to vote for sort of non-partisan positions like chief of police and Supreme Court type positions. So yeah, it's a new system. I can't find any references to it anywhere. So uh, you heard of it first here. Oh, nice. Well, I think this counts as like an initial tr- trademark or patent because it's dated by this time. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, enough of voting systems and Radio 1. Shall we actually talk about the moon and moon-related things? Yes. Item number one, Nokia wins a NASA contract to put a 4G network on the moon and probably expanded out to 5G as well. Well, you got to, haven't you? You know, if you turn up and do the old technology, you know, you're just going to get creamed in the marketplace. Well, absolutely. If you have the technology to hand, you may as well use it. Do you know what's going to be frustrating? The moon is going to get 4G before my hometown in Wales. That's pretty good. Um, (laughs) Not being funny, but there's not many teenagers on the moon to use their mobile phones. Ah. Uh, No, they're not. Uh, The plan for this would be the part of the Lunar Gateway mission and the actual moon bases that they put on the actual moon. They're going to have to have a telecoms network of relaying data back from the lander to the actual gateway system to the actual rovers that go out onto the moon as well. And if they're going to make a lunar habitat, then you're going to need a way of communicating uh, with the actual rovers that go out on the surface and back here on Earth as well. So Nokia has been awarded putting in that telecom system in place. Is it going to be possible for me to like text an astronaut? They'd be silly not to do that, wouldn't they? I mean, they might well, well do that. I think that would be silly to do it, to be honest. <laughs> they're just going to get stupid people like me texting them. When was the last time you texted someone, though, and didn't just send them a message over the internet? Uh, I don't know, but if I knew an astronaut's phone number on the moon, I'd text them. Unless it was one of those where, like, you get billed. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> oh no it's not part of the minutes yeah that's it you get billed for um space travel for this tax you've just lost a thousand pounds it would cost a hell of a lot well you know you have 4g roaming costs so if you're like in spain and you're watching netflix on your phone and you're not connected to the wi-fi that could cost a lot of money yeah for roaming data something like a quid per megabyte over the plan allowance or something like that so Watching Netflix on the moon, streaming over 4G or 5G by the time that might come around, that could be quite expensive as well. Yeah, I can imagine that as soon as they get off the lunar lander, they go, look, Dave, Dave, just just switch off data and put on wireless. (laughs) Otherwise, this is just going to cost us loads. (laughs) A few hours later, they come back, it's like, Dave, did you turn off the data? Yeah. Oh, no, I just turned on Bluetooth. (laughs) I hit the wrong button in these massive gloves. Also, do you get that? You do a lot of travelling. Do you like that thing where you, um, you know, you step off the plane and you get a little welcome text of, you know, welcome to Albonia and the, <laughs> some, your telecoms network is, you know, Corruptonet or something. Corruptonet, delightful. <laughs> yeah, I do a lot of travelling to Uzbekistan. Yeah. <laughs> do you know, um, do you know of Lake Constance in Germany? Uh, no. Okay, it's in, uh, it's in Bavaria and it's in an area called the Bordensee. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous bit of Germany. So when my wife was doing her 
OU degree in languages, uh, one of her course mates lived in Germany, uh, on the Bordensee, in, near Lake Constance, and we went to visit, and when I looked on the map, I noticed how close to Austria and Switzerland it was, and also Liechtenstein. So what we did was a four-country pub crawl. So we started in Germany, drove to Austria, had a little lunch and a half of beer, and then we drove to Liechtenstein, and then Liechtenstein into uh, Switzerland, and then Switzerland back into Germany. So we did four countries in a day, and each time I went into these little countries, I got the telecoms thing saying like, welcome to Liechtenstein. Oh, cool. That's good. I, and I do love getting those those little messages. Yeah, so they're going to have one. Welcome to the moon. And the astronaut goes, oh, we've arrived. <laughs> Well, we're finally here. One small text for man, one giant roaming charge from NASA. <laughs> so how much do you think it's going to cost them to put uh, 4G, 5G on the moon? It depends how much they have to do, because I'm guessing that, well, Nokia just provide like the antenna rather than they have to just go and build their own spaceship, because I'm guessing NASA will give them a spaceship or they'll find one or it will go with a, an astronaut or something. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're correct. So they provide the equipment, they provide the telecoms network that's going to go on the ship. So they have the specifications saying, your telecoms thing needs to weigh this much, be this size and this weight, and therefore we'll take it to the moon with us. Bear in mind, it needs to withstand the radiation, the vacuum, the temperature on the moon. It needs to survive the actual takeoff. Like if it's incredibly fragile, then that's useless to them. So it needs to be robust. So even taking into account all of that, it's going to cost $14 million. That's not bad. That's incredible. I don't think you could put a 4G network in North Wales for $14 million. <laughs> no, that, I mean, that's fair. Apart from the fact that as soon as you put like a 5G mast up, someone will go kicking it down saying that's spreading coronavirus. Uh, sadly, yes, that, that, that would happen. Which annoys me somewhat as a computer scientist because 5G is technically like a computer protocol. So it's, uh, and it works over the electromagnetic spectrum. So it's just light. So it's, if one person stood at one end of a, a field shining a torch in Morse code at you, and you could signal, that's that's kind of what, a, you know, a 4G protocol is doing to the mobile phone, but it's, it's doing it faster because it can do voice data. But the idea that 4G won't spread coronavirus, whereas 5G would, is like saying, well, that torch over there doing Morse code to me won't spread coronavirus, but if they change it to ASCII or binary encoding, then suddenly <laughs> suddenly <laughs> I'm going to get coronavirus. It's, what? How? How did you work that out? You're more likely to get coronavirus from semaphore than you are from 5G. Well, that, that's it. It's just like, what, what, hang, hang on, do you even understand this? How does light, you know, electromagnetic waves, a photon sort of transfer an object? Yeah, you know, it's like saying I can commute to work on a rainbow. <laughs> what, like little Mario? Yeah. His Mario Kart on Rainbow Road. Yeah, ba basically, if, if light can transfer an object, then I'm an object and a rainbow is light. Right, I'm going around by rainbow. So I think you answered your own question with, how do they not understand? They don't <laughs> understand. And they, they probably haven't put the effort into researching, why am I outraged? They just see the headlines and then are outraged. I do this as well. I will see an inflammatory headline and think, oh, oh, I'm angry now. I won't click on it. I won't read it. 
I'll just be angry. I've gotten a better habit now of actually doing some research to be like, that doesn't sound right. Click on it, Ugh, untick all of the GDPR data, and then finally get to the meat of the article, which is an out of context quote that actually doesn't represent the story. And it's just lots of screenshots taken at inappropriate times to make the person look like a fool saying a foolish thing that has been taken out of context. Yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, I know that's the, the way of the internet at the moment. Although I wouldn't go out protesting like some people did in Cheltenham. Pick any city to go and protest in. I wouldn't pick Cheltenham because it's full of like computer scientists who will pick you up. On. <laughs> it's also quite, quite a polite city as well. Yeah, worse cities are like Oxford and Cambridge or something to go and protest in, you know. You're not going to persuade many people, really. You've got to pick your audience. <laughs> Getting back to the story at hand, Nokia winning the contract to put a 4G network on the moon. This was announced as part of a tipping point selection that came out and it's just basically NASA listing all of the companies that they're going to do some deals with and who has been awarded contracts. And there's some big names there like SpaceX and Lockheed Martin, all the, all the people you'd expect to be building the stuff to put to the moon. But one name jumped out, which was the Sierra Nevada Corporation. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. I love their beer. But no, it's not the Sierra Nevada brewery company. It's someone who does deep demonstration scale hardware that uses methane and concentrated solar energy to extract oxygen from the lunar regolith, which is exciting, but it's not as exciting as the astronauts being able to crack open a few cold ones on the surface of the moon being like, yeah, we did it, lads. Lads on tour. Lads on tour. <laughs> but yeah, to be fair, I would get the Sierra Nevada Corporation to set up the first brewery on the moon. That would be incredible. Well, you do have microbreweries, so it could be like micro, nano, pico. What's the one beneath that? Femto. It's a femptometer I was thinking of. Femptometer is 10 to the minus 15. But yeah, uh, Sierra Nevada setting up a brewery on the moon would be quite incredible if they actually accomplished it. Yeah, so this tipping point thing, is this representing sort of we're tipping the moon from a desolate place to a more hospitable one? I honestly don't know why they've called it this. Like, you see these terms come up, and it's just, it'll be just someone's terminology that has just trickled out into these press releases. So when someone who is just not used to this kind of talk is presented with it, they're like, what the hell is a tipping point? Like, in my job, I have to look at requirements and convert them into documentation. And there's so much colloquialisms in there. Like, we were dealing with a set of requirements that was snag list 1, 2, 3, 4, 30. And all these discussions were like, oh, is snag list 40 ready? Is sna snag list 30 ready? And then after a while, I took a step back being like, what the hell is a snag list? <laughs> Why are we talking about snag lists? There's nothing to do with that in the software. There's no, there's nothing like list about this. And it's just one of those like cold water in the face moments of what is going on? So it might be like that with Tipping Point. I don't know why it's called that. Maybe they just like daytime ITV game shows. Yeah, because I was going to say, Tipping Point is a very anticlimactic game show, uh, I find. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not like Pointless, where the, the numbers go down. It's like, oh, you know that much? And it's always got that audience swell. Whereas this, you just watch it, big cardboard coins just slowly fall. <laughs> It's got all the, uh, you know, the penny fall machines. It's got all the excitement of that, but incredibly slowly. Yeah. And you don't really win much. And just take a marginally interesting thing of penny falls and make it less interesting. Well, how do they make it turn it into a game show? We'll turn a penny arcade machine into a game show. Brilliant. And it's still on. 
But anyways, that's our 4G discussion on the moon that has gone on many, many tangents. So we'll stop now and move on to the next story, which is... The Earth may have lost 60% of its atmosphere in a collision that formed the moon. So one of the leading theories about the formation of the moon is that it formed via a giant impact, hence the giant impact hypothesis, where an asteroid the size of Mars, called Theia, smacked into a younger version of Earth. It flew up a chunk of material into space, and this started to coalesce, formed the moon that we see today over time, very much like a snowball effect. So some scientists have run some computer simulations on this, and one of the simulations they did was actually putting an atmosphere around the moon, and then finding out how much of the atmosphere came off it. And this was done at the University of Durham, and these simulations used 300 odd computers and the findings in the abstract of the paper said the different moon forming impact hypothesis suggests that around 10 to 60 percent of a primordial atmosphere could have been removed directly so 10 to 60 percent that's a tenth or more than half if i was a doctor and i'd just done a rough biopsy on someone's like how big is the tumor doctor well it's between 1% of your body mass and 40% of your body mass. There's a bit of a discrepancy between those two. So 10 to 60% is a bit of and almost all of. So it's a hell of a catch-all term and it's not really that conclusive to me. No, no. I mean, I like the way the journalists um, just went for the bigger number because it's more interesting and uh, links back to our previous discussion on uh, exaggerating claims or mis misrepresenting claims. Yes, which I understand you have to do. If you're presented with just an abstract from a paper, which is very dry and it's not, and the language is very precise and direct and you have to like pull interesting things out of it. So 60% of Earth's atmosphere might have been lost in an impact. That is interesting. So I understand why they've done it. It's just one of those, oh, deflation of, oh wait, it's actually, this is the actual fact. This is just the headline that got me here and got them the ad revenue. So why are we mentioning this if we're just slagging off another newspaper or Sky News in this case? Well, it's more research being done on the origins of the moon and just showing that there is always something new. So even though it was quite obvious that some of Earth's atmosphere will have been lost during this impact, thanks to these studies done at the University of Durham, they're going to be able to get more precise models of how the moon came to be. And also, if it took some of the Earth's atmosphere with it, that might also indicate some of the geological makeup of the moon, basically what elements are on the moon and have contributed to the way it is. So might seem a bit, uh, so what at first, but this just helps us understand the moon longer down the line. Yes, it's traditional science of taking a hell of a lot of things and logic and 300 supercomputers or whatever it was and proving a very little piece of the puzzle. <laughs> yes. Progressing humanity's knowledge just that tiny bit extra. Well, every little helps. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of every little helps and little things, uh, the Earth is going to get another mini moon. So if you remember back in March, the Earth temporarily got a mini moon and Earth will always have these like little celestial visitors. They'll get caught up in the Earth's orbit, probably do a rotation or two of the Earth and then they'll be flung out into space because, you know, they've got all this energy coming towards the Earth and when it's captured it, it'll cause it to slingshot around the Earth, but 
the Earth isn't able to slow it down in time before it breaks free of the Earth's gravity and shoots off in another direction, quite likely around the Sun. And that's what slingshot manoeuvres are, although they're much more precise in astrodynamics. So this mini-moon that is going to be caught will be captured by the Earth's gravity, probably in October, and it will stay around for a couple of months, and then it'll be flung out probably early next year, maybe stay around until March. But what is interesting about this mini-moon is it might be a part of an old rocket. It could be the upper stage of an Atlas Centaur rocket that was used to put Surveyor 2 onto the moon. And when I say put Surveyor 2 on the moon, it lobbed it at the moon and smashed it into the surface. It was, uh, the, the mission was a failure, unfortunately, due to some of the onboard thrusters not working. So Surveyor 2 was meant to be a soft lander, but became an impactor instead. But the rocket that put it there flew past the moon, got caught in the sun's orbit, and now could be zooming past Earth in just a few weeks. Cool. So uh, can we see it? So at the moment, it's been detected because you could just get like blips on a screen. And it'll be like, OK, so there's something coming near Earth and it's known as an NEO, a near Earth object. And it's been designated 2020 SO. So it's this way you can track it a lot easier. It's got something to identify it now. So it's too far away to get a clear image of it. But now that we know its trajectory, when it comes past, photographs of it will be taken. And this has happened before when things get closer to Earth, you know exactly where, you, where they're going to be. You're there ready with your camera. And then all of a sudden, a Virgin train will just come and block your view at the pivotal moment. And you're like, oh, been waiting all day for this. And now something's come and blocked the view again. So now that you know the trajectory of it, you will be able to see it. Uh, does that count as a moon then if we created it? Um, well, no, it's, it's classifier is space junk. So you have, that's why a lot of satellites are called artificial satellites, because a moon is a natural satellite. So how do they know at the moment this thing that's just coming towards Earth is part of this rocket and not actually a rock? Well, the orbit is a bit of a dead giveaway because the orbit it's on at the moment is very circular and it's gone around the sun in quite a circular orbit, which is quite rare. If it's a near-Earth object, these asteroids are usually elliptical and go out as far as Mars, whereas this is incredibly circular, indicating that we launched it towards the moon, it missed, and then it just went around the sun and got caught on the same orbital trajectory as the Earth's orbit around the sun is, which, you know, that's the path of least resistance for it, so that makes sense. Uh, it's also moving relatively slowly because asteroids have been around for potentially millions of years and quite often billions of years resulting after impacts. And, you know, they're these rocks that have been flung out into space because of a, an impact. So therefore, they've got a lot of velocity, whereas this particular object has a lower velocity of about 0.6 kilometers a second. So 600 meters per second. I know that's fast by our standards, but that's quite slow in terms of asteroids. Plus, the object appears to be about 26 feet long, which is a similar size to the upper stage of this rocket. It's not precisely 26. It'll be like a plus or minus a couple of meters. But the fact that it's on roughly the same trajectory, roughly the same size, and the reverse engineering of its origin for this 1996 mission all adds up quite perfectly. So this has actually happened before, not with the same standards of a rocket going around the sun, but when the Russians first launched Sputnik, 
1957, you could actually see Sputnik fly overhead. It was a dot in the sky and you'd look up and you could actually track it because of the radio beep coming out with a boop, boop, boop. Actually, I'll include a recording of the Sputnik beeping here. So you could hear that, but if you looked up on a clear night, you could see Sputnik going overhead. Or so you thought, because you didn't actually see Sputnik. It was too small. The actual satellite is about, I think 50, 50 centimeters across, like bigger than a beach ball. So you're not going to be able to see that from space. What? people were seeing instead were the upper stages of the R7 rocket that put the satellite into space and it was trailing ever so slightly behind it. So that's what people were seeing. They were seeing the rocket that puts Sputnik into space, not Sputnik itself. Oh, cool. So how long did they go around for? Uh, a couple of months. Sputnik did about a thousand laps of Earth before it burned up in the atmosphere, probably over the ocean, because that's the most likely place that it's going to burn up. Uh, but yeah, Sputnik... Burned up in the atmosphere, there's no trace of it. I actually made a video about this, about what happened to Sputnik. There's one little bit of Sputnik left, and that's the arming key, which is in a... It's in the Smithsonian uh, Museum in America. And that's the last bit of Sputnik left. So how, how come the Americans have got that? Ah, you know what it's like. You go in, we own the place now. Well, I'll have this, I'll have this. Oh, that's quite cool. It's uh, <laughs> rules of war. So when did the um, Americans invade Russia? Cold War. We won, like, the, the West won the Cold War. I I'm pretty sure there was <laughs> sure, sure there was a ground invasion. I don't know. I think that, that's generally called a hot war, if that happened. <laughs> uh, I, I honestly don't know how it got the arming key. I think it might have been a donation. Uh, I, I need to visit the museum and I'll find out. Yeah, I like the idea that the Cold War is, the, yeah, it's not a hot war. It's this sort of geopolitical influence where you're fighting another country, but via proxies of not only territory, but also economics and diplomacy and all sorts. And I like in the middle of the, uh, the sort of Cold War, the Americans just go, aha, look what we've got, and just hold up the launch key of Sputnik. <laughs> and the Russians go, how the hell did they get that? <laughs> Oh, that's it. They've won now. They've yeah. got the arming key and we've lost Sputnik. Yeah, just this sort of, uh, you know, when a magician holds up your watch and you go, oh, wow. So Earth will be getting a temporary moon. There was an actual wonderful tweet uh, that there's this wonderful Twitter account, actually, that highlights the orbits. Um, I'll put a link to the tweet in the show and I'll ask for permission if I can use that animation in a video for this. So if you're watching on YouTube, the animation's here now. If not, check the show notes because the animation of this mini moon orbit is going to be shown there. Um, and also get involved in the Twitter discussion there because it is quite interesting. But this mini moon could be the upper stages of an old rocket that put Surveyor 2 onto the moon back in 1966. And can I just add, yeah, as the moon non-expert, the orbit animation is quite interesting <laughs> in that it's not <laughs> it's not a proper orbit, that. That's just like five-year-old has been given a crayon and told to, you know, draw where they think the moon would go if it was dry <laughs> or something. So well, space dynamics is is freaky. So I think it, it highlights it quite nicely that these orbits are weird and this is why the orbit is temporary because that is not a stable orbit and that is why it gets flung off. Yeah, that's definitely not a stable orbit. I'm not an astrophysicist, but uh, yeah, I know a, I know an <laughs> unstable orbit when I see one. I'm looking at the animation too now. Whoop, there it goes. So, oh, 
So we're going to be moving on to foreign moon news in a moment, and that's where we talk about other moons of the solar system, as in moons belonging to other planets, non-Terra moons. But first, I just want to add one little bit about Changi 4 and U22. Now, if you've listened to the show before, you know that I always bang on about this. And this is the Chinese space program Changi 4, which is a lander, and the U22 rover that is currently exploring the surface of the moon. And Changi 4 touched down early January 2019, and since then, it's been relaying data back to Earth for 655 days as the date of recording. And U22, this tiny little rover, has been exploring the surface since then, and it's been going and going and going, and it's the longest lasting lunar rover to date, and it's still going. It's just woken up from its 23rd lunar night, because a lunar night is 14 days, so when it's on the surface and it's in sunlight, it recharges its batteries, and that's when it goes around, but then in the night, it hibernates, puts itself to sleep so it can conserve energy, and it's just woken up from the 23rd lunar night at the time of recording, and I think that's amazing, and thankfully, other people have as well, because the Chinese Lunar Exploration Program has been awarded exploration and scientific achievements at the International Astronomical Federation, and they've given them the World Space Award. Uh, so the World Space Award, that sounds good. What What is it? So it's awarded by the International Astronomical Federation, not the International Astronomical Union. They're all about naming things. This is about the Federation. <laughs> sounds very Star Trek, I know. They've awarded the team World Space Award, and it is presented for an outstanding contribution or contributions in space science, space technology, space medicine, space law, or space management of exceptional impact to the world's progress in astronautics. So that's what the World Space Award is, kind of like space Oscars. Brilliant. Well, that's well deserved. It's given no more than once per year. So all this space exploration stuff that's going on going on at the moment, the Chang'e 4 mission is so deserving of it because it's such an incredible achievement to get this little rover going. It was only meant to last a month and it's been going ever since. Oh, right. Because they, they basically, they put it to sleep, they woke it up and then they went, can it do it again? Yeah. Oh, let's do it again then. Let's see how far it can go. Could it do it again? Yeah. Let's just see. Let's just keep it going. And that's exactly what they've done. They, they built it to last. That's brilliant. So uh, how long do you reckon it'll go on for? That's a good question. I don't know at the moment. I reckon it might be able to last another year. I'd love it to outlast one of the Mars rovers, but it never will just because the conditions on Mars are a little more favourable and the machines are definitely built to last there, whereas this little rover, it's tiny. I'd love it to last to a thousand days. So it's got another year or so to get there. So I think it can get to a thousand days. Okay. I'll add it to the betting book. <laughs> yes. We discussed this last time off off the air, so it won't make any sense to anyone. But we've had a few bets, so we should um, just record them in the betting book. So um, Andy thinks Changi for will last thousand days. Is that Earth days? Yeah, Earth days. Yeah, we've got to be careful with these moon contracts, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so the betting book so far is uh, Andy thinks Changi 4 will last a thousand Earth days. 
Rick doesn't think the US will launch for the moon by 2024. I, I've decided to reword that one as launch for the moon because um, I, I don't want to win a bet where the mission fails. So we'll say if they launch uh, or uh, do a decent attempt at launch, then then that's a win. Okay, that's fair. If, if the rocket gets to the, the pad <laughs> and they have an attempt, <laughs> I'm happy. And, uh, uh, and also you think Russia will have a successful soft lander on the moon by, what was it, 2024? Oh, before the Americans, absolutely. Oh, yeah, before the US landing. Yes, a thousand percent. So we'll update you with the results of this betting book as and when these events come in. So a year from now, we'll see if Changi 4 is still going, and more importantly, we'll see if the show is still going. Hopefully it will be. Yeah, it'll be disappointing to be outdone by a uh, moon rover. So now we're on to foreign moon news, the portion of the show where we talk about non-Earth moons of the solar system, so moons around Jupiter, Saturn, and in this case, we'll be talking about an asteroid moon. So back of January this year, a small asteroid moon was confirmed around a Trojan asteroid of Jupiter called Eurybates. Can you remember what a Trojan asteroid or a Trojan moon is, Rick? Uh, I can but for the purposes of the podcast, <laughs> well, I think I can. Uh, is it, is it uh, an asteroid that's at a Lagrangian point? Yes. Way. Yes. Well done. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've been hanging around with you two too long. However, I, I think that's not really self-explanatory. So <laughs> I'm gonna it's have, not. <laughs> I'm going to say, Andy, what is a uh, Trojan asteroid? When you have a solar system like ours, you have a big body of mass in the middle and you have other bodies that orbit it. Between the Sun and the Earth, there are these stable points in the orbit called Lagrangian points. So if you imagine the 360 orbit of the Earth, 60 degrees ahead of the Earth and 60 degrees behind the Earth, there are these like safe spaces, these little stable points in the orbit where you can put an object there and it'll stay there. It won't float out of the orbit, it won't get dragged into the sun or fall back to Earth, it'll just stay in those points because the gravitational pull of the sun and the Earth are relatively equal or they cancel each other out. There's some funky space dynamics that's going on that basically keeps these objects at the stable points and these are Lagrangian points and there's one ahead of the Earth and there's one behind the Earth as well and it's the same for all the other planets in the solar system as well as the planets themselves. So Jupiter is so big that some of the moons around it have their own Trojan moons. So they share an orbit, but 60 degrees ahead and 60 degrees behind these uh, these stable points. But anyway, there are Trojan asteroids that cluster ahead and behind of Jupiter. And before you say, oh, well, that doesn't make Jupiter a planet because it hasn't cleared of its orbit. Well, Jupiter is so significant that it's because of the presence of Jupiter that these asteroids are clumped there in the first place, which kind of nulls the point of, oh, it can't clear its neighborhood. No, it's making its neighborhood. It's a bit of a distinction. And who's going to argue that Jupiter's not a planet? It's very much a planet. One of these Trojan asteroids is called Eurybates, and it was discovered that one of these Trojan asteroids has a little moon, and it was given the denominator Eurybates 1, or Eurybates I. Just a few days ago, this little moon was given a name, and it has been called Quater. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Quater after a Mexican Olympic athlete. That was her kind of like nickname almost. So Norma Enriqueta, hence Quater, Basilo Sotolo, 
Uh, she died last year, sadly, but she was an Olympic athlete and was the first woman to light the Olympic cauldron. And this was back in the Olympics in Mexico City in 1968, the Summer Olympics, by the way. So Quater has been named after her honor because Trojan asteroids are often named after Trojans or Titans, I believe. Yeah, Greek or Trojan warriors. But there's so many Trojan asteroids that have been discovered that for once, there's more things than Greek gods. So they've actually started to name them after Olympic athletes now in their honor. And she was the first woman to light the Olympic torch very much like Eurobate's role as part of one of the heralds in Greek mythology, and there were torches involved there, I think. But yeah, this tiny little asteroid moon has been given the name Quater, which I think is a lovely little bit of moon-based nomenclature. That's great. Yeah, I was going to ask, why are they allowed to um, name after non-gods? But yes, they've run out of gods. Uh, yes, in this case. Well, they've run out of specifically Greek and Trojan warriors. That's what they've run out of names for in this case. And there's a certain uh, threshold. So it has to have H greater than 12. And I think H is like apparent magnitude. So it has to be a certain size or brightness for it to actually be allowed to be named after a Olympic athlete. And thankfully, Quater meets that criteria. Oh, cool. Who decided that uh, they're going to do Olympic athletes as opposed to, I don't know, cricketers? So it was at the IAU General Assembly, the 30th one. Don't know when that happened, but that's when they kind of get together at these general assemblies and they name things and then they also decide what are we going to do going forward. So I think at this point they were like, well, there's so many warriors and Trojans and whatever. So let's start naming them after athletes, but significant athletes. People, like I imagine there'll be one named after Jesse Owens eventually. Other athletes who have broken world records or made significant contributions or uh, broke new ground. And have had sufficient time that we know they haven't failed a drugs test at any time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the Armstrong asteroid has since been blown <laughs> to pieces. Yeah. So to wrap it up, the tiny little asteroid moon of Eurobates 1 has been given the name Quater after the Mexican Olympic athlete who was the first female athlete to light the Olympic torch at the opening Olympic ceremony in Mexico City in 1968. Uh, we're going to stick with Jupiter for a little bit and the Juno team has decided to fly by the moons of Jupiter. Now, personally, I thought this was the plan all along, but apparently they've actually decided to do it. And I think it's, uh, well, we're here now. We may as well. <laughs> it's like, yeah, just staying for an extra drink. We just popped by Jupiter, so we might as well. <laughs> it's, it's so long back, one for the road. Yeah. So yeah, this uh, this the Juno satellite built by Lockheed Martin, it's kind of completed its primary mission, which is studying the surface, the clouds, the atmosphere, and more importantly, the core of Jupiter. So at the moment, it's one of its engines hasn't fired properly, so it was meant to get a lot closer to Jupiter than it currently is, so its orbits are a lot further out and they take a lot longer. They take 53 days to complete Jupiter, whereas it was planned that it should only take 14 days. So while they're this far out, it's actually quite easy to manoeuvre Juno to a point where it can fly by some of the Galilean moons. And I think it intends to fly by all of them. So it's definitely going to go past Ganymede. It's going to go past Europa. 
her, which would be incredible because it'll just be a flyby. I don't think it's going to go into the orbits of them because that takes far too much fuel to correct the orbit. So it'll just fly over them and take a lot of snapshots of the surface. So imagine you're like driving past the Eiffel Tower and you lean out the window with your camera and you just have it on the like snapshot mode of just like click, 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 try to get as many photos as you can as you go past. That's what the uh, Juno will be doing with Ganymede, Europa and Io as well. But it seems like it's going to leave out Callisto, which makes sense because Callisto is significantly further out than these other moons. But still, Callisto getting left out again, the poor little thing, which we'll be covering later on in this episode, by the way. Okay, I thought they were all in groups of four around Jupiter. Is that did I just make that up? I think you made that up. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the, the 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 first four that we talked about were the inner moons and they're grouped together. And the Galilean moons, there's four of them, and we're talking about those as kind of like a group. But after that, it's going to get into groups of like nine, twelve, maybe even twenty. Oh, okay. While it doesn't seem like a significant bit of news of all right, well the satellite's there, it's just going to take some photos. This is going to be quite a trailblazing mission because it's the first time that photos of these moons have been taken since the Galilean missions way back when. Uh, I think Cassini took some photos of Jupiter but nowhere near as many up close as the moons so this will be the closest that humanity has been to these moons in a long long time and not only that it'll help lay the groundwork for a new mission that's going to go to Jupiter called the Europa Clipper. The person who is working on that is my good friend Robert Papalado. Uh, he's the guy that I called at NASA to help me with the Miranda video. Oh, cool. Got a friend at NASA. Uh, a friend as in, hello, can you help me with this? <laughs> yes, okay. Cool. Can you get three 4G minutes on the moon? <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully he'll have the, like, um, employee discount card for it. Do you remember that? Or are you too young? When you used to buy pay-as-you-go cards and scratch them off uh, and, and type in a 20-digit code. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you just basically hold the cards up to the light when when the teller wasn't looking and then write down the numbers and run away. I didn't do that, but yeah, I, <laughs> I guess you can get away with that in some village in Wales where... I'm just, I'm just taking that joke from The Simpsons when Homer's looking through lottery scratch cards by holding them up to the light. Oh, right. But yes, this is a, quite a cool bit of news because this will be the closest that humanity has been to these moons in a long time, but also it'll lay the groundworks for the Europa Clipper because Juno will detect things as it goes over and it'll try to detect some plumes because it looks like the surface is geologically active. So flying through these plumes, it can analyze what's in it. But because this is an initial detection, well, initial up close detection, you can then tailor the instruments on the Europa Clipper to look for exactly the same things to confirm it and do additional studies as well. So it's like a fact finding mission, which is pretty amazing considering it's just there anyway. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought of that. That actually, yes, you've got to know what you're looking for. If you're looking for hydrogen, you've got to put a hydrogen sensor on it. Exactly. So, so yeah. It's a bit more sophisticated than that. Oh, like, sure. oh, no, I didn't put the moon filter on it. It's stuck on the dog filter. <laughs> what, as in those Snapchat filters or something that put funny... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That would be annoying. Like, <laughs> if NASA had paid billions to go past and someone had downloaded a dog filter library and every moon picture had a pair of eyes and a floppy ears of a dog and a tongue sticking out. And by the time you manage to get the spacecraft to the actual moon, 
that filter will not be popular anymore. It'll be long dead. The trend will have died ages ago because it takes four or five years to get there. Everyone in NASA, as soon as the pictures come back in, will go, repost, repost. <laughs> so, leaving Jupiter and going off to the distant moon of Saturn, where there is some exciting news about the moon of Enceladus. Ooh. So, have I spoken to you about Enceladus before? Um, it's an ice moon. It is an ice moon. But, uh, sorry, we'll try that again. Uh, no, uh, you've never spoken to me. I need to know about Enceladus. <laughs> sorry, for my role on the show. <laughs> so, yes, Enceladus is an ice moon, as you correctly remembered or guessed. Enceladus is geologically active, and there is this gorgeous photo taken by Cassini of these volcanic plumes ejecting ice and water into space. And these um, plumes are coming from a thing on the surface called tiger stripes, these fissure vents, these long, thin volcanoes that shoot up cryovolcanic material into space. And there's this gorgeous photo taken by Cassini of this eruption as it's approaching this little moon. So obviously, this moon is geologically active. And the headline for this is NASA finds evidence of fresh ice on Saturn's moon Enceladus. And I'm thinking, well, yes, obviously, there's this volcanic activity. It's, you know, putting all of this fresh ice onto the surface. There's not a lot of craters on the surface. Yes, obviously, there's fresh ice. Duh. So is that kind of the equivalent of NASA finds evidence of lava on Volcano Moon? Uh, yeah, exactly. It's, it's exactly that kind of thing. But what is significant about this study and the oh, but actually element is the fact that it's fresh ice across the whole of the moon, not just around the volcano bits. Obviously, there's a lot around the volcano bits, but around the North Pole, the South Pole, the other side of the moon, there is tons of fresh ice. And this is important because it means that there's this global resurfacing feature on it, which means the surface is constantly overturning because of this fresh ice, which means the moon is more geologically active than we first thought. Obviously, it's very geologically active for this plumes of stuff to go into space. But the fact that it's stuff going on at a smaller level across the moon is certainly significant. And how they detected this is actually pretty cool as well. They used infrared imaging of the moon to look at the crystalline structure of the ice. They fired the infrared camera at it, got all this data back, and how the infrared is reflected off the moon's surface tells you how crystalline it is. And the more crystallized it is, the more structured it is, which means that it formed from warmer material. Whereas if you just get a bunch of water, throw it up into space, it'll freeze immediately and it'll become very chaotic, very amorphic. So that means it's not very structured because of how quickly it froze. Whereas if it's warmer, it takes a lot longer for it to cool down. It allows the water molecules and the ice structure to form very rigid, very structured patterns and therefore it's less amorphic so you can infer that it's come from warmer material, which means that the moon is more geologically active. That's incredible. They are NASA, though. They can... <laughs> they can do anything. They are NASA. They can do anything. But it is still incredible to see this kind of stuff coming from a satellite that's long dead. This is data that has still been processed several years after the mission ended. Oh, cool. Yeah, Cassini's dead. It's long gone. Oh, so they've got a bit of a backlog. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, look at the Voyager images. They're still finding new things from them to this day. 
It's like a, a sort of Where's Wally that they can't finish. A massive book of Where's Wally, but we don't even know which pages Wally is on, and necessarily what Wally looks like, but we'll fire infrared at it and we might be able to determine the internals. We've looked at all of the jumpers and by the crystalline structure of this particular jumper, the red and white stripes are spaced perfectly enough to know that this is indeed Wally, yeah. or as the Americans call him, Waldo. Uh, yeah, no, I, I do like the um, ability of NASA to do this sort of Sherlock Holmes-esque deductions. You know, if you, if you look at this and it's grown on the left side, and we take this crystalline structure, therefore, a billion years ago, uh, an ant pushed a grape up the hill of this cryo-volcano <laughs> or something. Yes, that is a... Sherlock Holmes deduction is a, is a good analogy for it. I quite like that. Is Enceladus the one that you think looks like Hoth out of Star Wars? No. <laughs> no. Oh, as in, I use an actual image of Hoth in the videos I use, but you're right, Hoth looks the most like Enceladus, or Enceladus is the one that most looks like Hoth. Yeah, didn't you do an article on moons that look like fictional planets or something? Yeah, yeah, it was it was planets and worlds from Star Wars in our own reality. So I described Mustafar, the lava planet that Anakin decided to live on after he got his arms chopped off for some stupid reason and then turned into Darth Vader. The prequels are a mess, that doesn't make any sense. But lava planet, you think, oh yeah, Io, the lava moon. That's pretty cool. And of course you've got Hoth with the ice planet, and then there's Cloud City, so it's like, well, Venus, that's pretty much all in the clouds, and they're thinking of being able to, like, they're going to put orbiters around Venus, especially now considering they might have discovered some uh, signs of life there. So I'll try and dig out the article and include it in the show notes. Yeah, and was Enceladus the one used for Hoth? I think it was. Let, oh, let, let me have a look now. <laughs> cool. Da, da, da. Enceladus, Hoth's twin. There we go. So yes, you're right. Hey, see, I do know some stuff. <laughs> and then I uh, equated Mars to Geonosis, Earth to Alderaan 2.0. That was an obvious one. Mimas, the Death Star. Endor could well exist. There was a, a moon detected a while ago, the forest moon of Endor. Anyway, enough about Star Wars. Let's move on to some very local moon news. If, if you're new to the show, Very Local Moon News features local stories from towns called Moon. They almost all exclusively come from America and almost always from this one town called Moon Township, Pennsylvania, because none of the others seem to give me any good stories. And because it's Halloween, there's some Halloween-themed festivals. For example, at Moon Township, they've released a list of their favourite pumpkin patches in the Moon area. There are two items on this list, and therefore I would say that's not a list, that's a sentence. <laughs> and the list after... <laughs> yes, Live Say Orchards and Wild Things Farm, that's where you need to get your pumpkin patches. And something tells me those are the only two pumpkin patches in the area, unless there's a third one that happened to just be scorched off the face of the earth by the venomous press of Moon Township. They were like, we are never going to give them any more free advertising ever again. Yeah, the old pumpkin wars of Moon Township. They're legendary. Uh, can, we, can we have that list again, Andy? I know it's a long, long list. Yeah, let, let, me, let me get my reading glasses. It's Livesay Orchards and Wild Things Farm. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Marvellous. So, yes, if you need a, a pumpkin from Moon Township... Toddle on down to one of those two places. There may be more. I don't know. I need to I need to do some research and find out. And if you get there and it's shut, go to the other one. 
So we'll now talk about full moon of the month, the portion of the show where we talk about the name of the full moon this particular month. Previous episodes have talked about like the harvest moon or the sore eye moon. Now, this month is quite a rare one because it features a blue moon. And a blue moon is when there are two full moons in one month because, you know, it, it takes the moon 28 days to go around the Earth. And therefore, some months, like this one with 31 days, you'll happen to get two moons in one calendar month. And how often do they happen? So they're fairly <laughs> infrequent. The last one that happened... Uh, oh, can't get the straight man nowadays. When was the last time it happened... Uh, once in a blue moon, you could say. Anyway, I, I like the way you go, well, actually, that's an entirely logical question. Let me give you an answer. Ah, okay. So, yeah, the last time it happened was 31st of March 2018. So this is the first one in over two years. Uh, and we'll talk about this because on the last show, we talked about all the moon names for October. And considering we're recording this in October, there's no point in reiterating ourselves, other than the fact that Gopher Lux Back Moon is still the coolest full moon name we've had so far. Now, the blue Gopher Lux Back Moon. Oh, why not? You could just slap on as many titles as you want to this. It's like getting those online degrees. Not proper ones, like from the OU. Those are legitimate and hard. I'm talking about the ones you buy from the likes of University of Phoenix, so you could just slap whatever titles you want on. Blue Gopher Looks Back Moon, or Gopher Looks Back Blue Moon? Gopher Looks Back Blue Moon. So looks back woefully. I, I like the Blue Blood Hunter Gopher Looks Back. <laughs> Just putting Blood Hunter in for the sake of it. No, it's a, uh, it's a hunter's moon and a blood moon, isn't it? October. Uh, okay, so the Hunter's Blood Gopher Looks Back Moon. Anyways, because we already talked about the full moon names for October last episode, we're going to focus on a blue moon, and how that phrase might have come to be. So, the definition, two full moons in a month. Now, where did that phrase come from? Apparently, this is the first instance of it being mentioned, is from a passage in an anti-clerical pamphlet attacking the Roman clergy, and specifically Cardinal Wolsey, and it's a conversation between two priest's servants... And it's written in Old English, and it's not translated, so please forgive me if I've managed to butcher this. Oh, churchmen are wily foxes. If they say the moon is blue, we must believe that it is true. Admitage, their interpretation. Now, I, I was stumbling over admitage, because I'll put up a spelling of it here, but it's admit, T-Y-N-G-E. How would you pronounce that? Admittinage. Admittinage. Okay, so it's just admitting. Either way, that was the first instance of blue moon appearing. And the interpretation being, oh, priests will say something absurd and you must believe it because that is how the Catholic Church has come to be. Like I said, it's an anti-clerical pamphlet. So that's the first instance of it and an absurd statement like the moon is blue, but it doesn't really mean two full moons in a month. Whereas another interpretation of Old English, which is is the spelling of Bilu, so it's spelled B-E-L-E-W-E, which you can phonetically pronounce as Bilu, Bilu. But in Old English, apparently this meant to betray, as in to betray someone. So having two full moons in a month when you use the moon as a monthly signifier, well, having two full moons in a month throws off your calendar and betrays your schedule, hence... Blue betray? 
there's some loose connection there. That's one, like, grasping at straws kind of interpretation of it. Yeah, um, I, I can't prove it wrong, uh, but yeah, it does. Oh, he blew the operation because he, you know, started blowing his whistle or something while he was sneaking up on the enemy. I don't know if that blue is the same sort of betray. Mm, potentially. It's an odd one, and there's no re real reason as to why it's called a blue moon, because it's not visibly blue. I mean, very rarely will the moon appear blue, and that, and even then it's due to things like atmospheric conditions, and if there is just happening the right scatter of light off the right cloud, if there's like a fire nearby and there happens to be a particular element of the sky, that kind of thing, then the moon might appear blue, but for it to happen on a blue moon is very, very rare. So the last, well, the last blue moon was on March 31st, 2018. The last blue moon on a Halloween was October 1974. Ooh, and are you going to say something happened that day that changed history? Uh, I honestly don't know. Maybe Halloween was released for the first time. I think that was 1974. Let me have a look. It'd be more impressive if, you, yeah, if we edit something in. There was an awkward edit here because we just went to look up if anything amazing happened on Halloween of 1974 and other than Muhammad Ali knocking out George Foreman the night before, there were a few low minor celebrity births and deaths around that era, but nothing significant that we could point to, like the Monster Mash being released or the first Halloween film being released on that day. So unfortunately, so the only significant thing that happened on October the 31st, 1974 is that it was a blue moon on a Halloween. Absolutely. Yeah, let that be a warning to you. Nothing happened last time, but then this time, definitely something will happen. Law of averages. Oh, what are you talking about? 2020 has been such a boring year this year, <laughs> yeah. so... I, w I wouldn't provoke 2020. And the next moon is... Da -da -da -da, Callisto! Hey. So just from the uh, show notes, I like the look of Callisto. It looks like they're having a party. Yeah, Callisto is an incredible looking moon. It looks speckled, doesn't it? Oh, it looks like um, Earth taken from above, but the streetlights are going across the whole planet as opposed to just like the outlines of the country. Yeah, it's like, imagine Earth, but with lots of volcanoes going off, some people having fireworks display and people firing laser pens at the sky. Oh, and no clouds. Yeah, no clouds. Uh, and the sort of top left of it's on fire. That's what Callisto looks like. Yes. Yes, it does. So Callisto has a really interesting surface and it is the oldest surface in the solar system. So what you're looking at there, Rick, is an ancient icy surface that has been bombarded over millions, if not billions of years. And these, all of those dots are craters. Some are much bigger than others from impacts over time. And what has happened on the surface is you get crater saturation. So there's so many craters that they're just, every new impact just overwrites the old ones. Okay. So how, how does that cause the colors? So they're not volcanoes? No, no, they're, they're, it's geologically inactive at the moment because there hasn't been a global resurfacing or there's not evidence of any resurfacing. So it's like a pockmark on ice. So if you've got like lots of dirty ice and you fire a bullet at it, the ice will be nice and clean around it because you've resurfaced this ice. You've kind of like cleaned it a little bit. You've dug out fresh ice from beneath and put it onto the surface. Whereas the rest of the surface has got dirty from all the dust and whatever that's happened. 
So that's what's happened on Callisto. Over the years, it's got like all this dust and all this like dirt from impacts and from space and from debris and all this kind of stuff. And then occasionally you'll have this huge impact which churns up fresher ice and puts it onto the surface in the crater and the surrounding areas, which is why one of the craters just below the middle, it'll have these streaks coming out of it. And that'll be from like a massive impact that flung out all of this material for ages, uh, for a massive distance. Yeah, no, sorry, it is quite mesmerizing. Yes, it is. All right, so the facts about Callisto. Callisto is almost the same size as Mercury. It's a little bit smaller, but it's only got a third of the mass. And that's because it's made of mostly rock and ice, whereas Mercury is almost all rock, so it's a lot heavier because of it. So Callisto is one of the biggest moons in the solar system. It's the second biggest of Jupiter, and I think it's the third biggest in the solar system. So it's a pretty hefty moon, made of 60% rock and iron and 40% ice. And it orbits Jupiter at a distance of about 2 million kilometres, so about five or six times further away than Earth's moon is from us. That's how far Callisto is from Jupiter. And it takes 17 days, roughly, to orbit the planet. So one of the biggest moons in the solar system, very close in size to one of the actual planets, with a fascinating surface that also features, well with an asterisk, I'll get to that in a minute, features the biggest crater in the solar system, which is Valhalla. And it's so big that this crater takes up almost an entire hemisphere. It's incredible. There's an, I'll put an image in the show notes and on screen here. Now, Valhalla is confirmed as the biggest crater. So you see there's like shock waves coming out from the, from the center of it, Rick. That is part of the crater because of how damning uh, the impact was. But there has been detections of an even bigger crater on Ganymede, which we covered last show. So I'll timestamp it and put it in the show notes for when we talk about it there. But this is the largest confirmed crater in the solar system. And that's where Vikings go to die. Uh, yes. So they start off in the boat, go over the waterfall, and then they're put in this big cannon and shot directly at Callisto. So one final thing that I'd like to mention about Callisto is, you know, the last three Galilean moons that I've spoken about, Io, Europa, and Ganymede, they've been in an orbital resonance where for every one orbit Ganymede does, Europa will do two, and Io will do four. Or Callisto, because it's significantly further out, it's not part of this resonance, which actually makes sense considering it has an older surface and it's not as geologically active as those inner moons, therefore, it can preserve the surface and it's kind of like a time capsule in a way whereas the others are all affected and have had these global resurfacing and while they might have whole potential for life callisto is a, like a time capsule it's like this preservation of what has gone on and it makes it a very attractive place to actually go and even set up a base because it's so far away from Jupiter, but close enough that you can still study Jupiter without being bombarded from the radiation and the magnetosphere of Jupiter screwing up your equipment. Okay, cool. Are they uh, thinking of putting a base there? or There's no concrete plans at the moment, but it is one of the more viable candidates of setting up a base. So if you were going to put a lander on there and send humans to a moon of Jupiter, Callisto would be the best one to go to. Yeah, is it like the first one out that you could actually do it? Looking at the list from the previous episodes, yeah, most of them have like volcanic or icy death or something. Just, <laughs> you're going to die pretty quickly, so yeah. Ganymede is probably a good shout, but I would reckon Callisto is the safer bet. And it's also far enough out that you could explore some of the other moons of Jupiter as well and get back to Earth if you've got humans on it. 
because then it's easier to escape the gravitational pull of Callisto and not have to overcome Jupiter as well. Because you're further out, so the gravitational pull isn't as strong as it would be on Ganymede. How long would it take to get there? Uh, it takes five years to get to Jupiter, but there'll be some very tricky manoeuvring when you're there. So what will probably happen is you get to Jupiter and then you're hanging around for a month just to get the right orbital path to get to Callisto because you want to make sure that it's a soft landing, the dynamics are just correct. So it'll probably take six years, I'd reckon, to get to Callisto. That'd be so frustrating if you're at Jupiter being like, I could see it. It's gone past me 17 times already. I'm just trying to get there. Uh, it's like one of those um, fairground machine games with the claw angle onto a teddy. It's just like someone back at NASA with a joystick trying to land you on Callisto. And you go, oh, come on. So close. I'm so close. So you've given nicknames to all of the other moons of the solar system so far. What are you going to call Callisto? The oldest moon. Is that fair or is that... No, I think that, I think that's a that's a fair shout. The oldest moon is a good shout. I'm surprised you haven't called it like the speckled moon or oh, something. I've put like poxmarked that. as well. Okay, so the old pocked oh the battle scarred moon. Well, it's uh, don't let me put words in your mouth. If you want to go with old pockmarked moon, go with that. Yeah, I'll go with the old pockmarked moon. So that has been our show. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you've liked what you've heard, please leave a comment on the YouTube videos. Also, feel free to tweet me or email me with any thoughts. I know a lot of you have done that already, and I really appreciate the feedback, especially some of the some of the people pointing out moon news stories to me. Really appreciate that. Thank you so much for doing that, uh, for helping me out and put together this show. And thank you also for listening. So catch you next time where we'll be talking about more moons. See you. Bye. Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show! Fur... Furby? That's a toy, isn't it? No, Furby. <laughs> You're thinking of...